invites me here. I'm thankful to God for the opportunity to open His Word with you this morning. I'm playing a bit injured this morning. I had periodontal surgery on Monday morning to correct some gum recession. So I have a line of stitches here and here. And my uh, face is a little bit puffy uh, this morning. It normally hasn't got this uh, fine resonant quality. It's a lot thinner. And when I was uh, scheduling my surgery, I simply failed to overlook this commitment, much to my secretary's chagrin, because that happens too frequently for her uh, comfort. But I do feel fine enough. I think my speech will be a little bit affected as we go on. There'll be certain uh, syllables that'll come across a little thicker uh, than usual, but I have asked the Lord to carry me through this morning. And uh, it's been a long time since I was punched in the mouth, although that did happen more than once in my life. Uh, And I have returned the punch. Uh, But it's been a long, long time ago. But that's what it feels like. It feels like being punched in the mouth and trying to recover from that. Should I start bleeding from the mouth, you guys here will see it first. And uh, alert me to that, please. And then if someone will retrieve a dampened tea bag... I'm told that's what will uh, stop the bleeding, and that'll be really interesting to try to hear me uh, speaking through that. For the first of Anners in the room, you'll see the title on the screen looks uh, maybe vaguely familiar from what you heard just this last Sunday. And uh, there are two reasons for that. The first is that I've spent this week drugged and uh, out of my right mind. Uh, because of the drugs that I've taken, and I've been asleep most of the week, so it seems that the best homiletic strategy when you're coming off such as that is to go back to your your most unclouded thought, and that was Sunday morning, uh, the sermon from that. But the second and actual reason why I'm bringing uh, the sermon that I gave just this Sunday at First of Ann is I, I toyed with other topics. I even... Uh, worked on a couple of other things that I was uh, preparing to speak to you about this morning. And as I did, it just didn't click. And it's one of those things that if if you speak, uh, if you're a preacher in the room, you kind of know how that works sometimes when you just have something in mind, something in heart, that you're pretty confident that this is what God wants you to talk about and nothing else. And so uh, I'm bringing some things I talked about to uh, First of Anners on Sunday, but I'm uh, because I have a little more time here than I have on Sunday morning at my church. I'm able to amplify that that out. Uh, this message is itself late last week. This was uh, a message that I began to think about. Uh, I'm in the midst of a sermon series at at First of Ann, and this text was in the chamber. But I wasn't going to empty it until later uh, in February. But with the events in Haiti and with world attention uh, galvanized there, it seemed apropos to go on and speak from Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46 last Sunday. And it still seems apropos to do so again this morning. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. This is uh, Jesus speaking. In this particular chapter, he gives, uh, Matthew records three of his parables. This is the third of the three. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and the Son of Man was a self-referential 
title that Jesus used of himself, the referent is Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man was one who was coming with divine authority, with sovereign power, and Jesus took that title from Daniel upon himself. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it, to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so I'm in this series at First of Anne that I'm calling the Gospel Culture Making God Believable. And I get this idea of making God believable from C.S. Lewis, who wants to find a saint. Lewis said a saint of God is one who makes God believable. And just so that we're clear on our terminology, when we refer to a person as a saint, we're referring to somebody who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. That is, they have been justified by His grace, an exercise of faith placed in Him. They are in the process of being sanctified, and they will be glorified by Him. A saint is the convergence of three marvelous actions of God, justification, sanctification, and glorification, within a person, and that convergence makes God believable to all who get wind of it. And I like that way of Lewis uh, putting it, because it keeps forefront in our thinking that the purposes of God, the redemptive purposes of God, are public. You've no doubt heard people say their religion is private. Biblically speaking, biblically considered, it is not. The redemptive intentions of God are public. It's very personal, certainly, but what He does in and through us and for us and with us is to make Himself believable to the public, in the public. So what my Gospel Culture series is about are those distinctive ways we make God believable. I've used um, the phrase from Titus chapter 2, verse 10, about 
adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. Or I think the NIV puts it, uh, making the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And we've been talking about ways that gospel culture shows itself to be otherworldly in this world and to this world. And as I've gone through this, I've been careful to distinguish between distinctiveness and difference. That is, we are not interested in being different for difference sake. People notice differences all the time. It's a, it's a pastime whenever you go to public places to notice the differences between you and others or the people you're with and, and others. Differences can be merely eclectic. Differences can be merely apathetic. We're interested in distinctiveness as a gospel culture. Those distinctive ways that we make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive to other people without preaching ourselves. And I've been very careful to emphasize this in my church, that our lives, that is, how we live, our ways of living, our lifestyles, our lives are not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. Meaning, the gospel is a message about what Jesus Christ has objectively accomplished for sinful men and women and boys and girls. And as such, because the gospel is a message, it must be spoken. No one is saved looking at your life. God does not bring people into His kingdom via osmosis. They are saved hearing the Word of God spoken through the convicting and quickening work of the Spirit of God working with the Word of God to bring about belief and glorification of the Son of God, Jesus. So the Gospel is a message. The role of our lives is sort of like the music that carries that message along. We've all heard songs where the lyrics are fine, the music isn't necessarily to our liking. And we've been talking about at First of Anne that the same is true with our ways of life. We either attract people to hear the lyrics, we win a hearing for the gospel, or we repel people through the ways that we live, and sometimes we do a little of both, just being honest. But one way that Christians especially adorn the doctrine of God our Savior is when we are emissaries of Jesus' compassion. When we are particular stewards of His mercy. And I'm calling this becoming sheepishly opportune. And I know the word sheepish conjures in a lot of minds this um, idea of bashfulness. Or sort of... um, a, a reticence to step in and do what needs to be done or say what needs to be said. And I don't mean sheepish in, in that direction. In putting the word sheepish with the word opportune, I'm trying to get at the quality of opportunism that the church practices. And that is effective yet humble It's not that we come barging in saying, lucky for you, the Christians are here. And now everything's going to be fine. It's that we come in 
not preaching ourselves as anyone's Savior, but preaching Jesus Christ as the Savior, with ourselves as opportune instruments to step in and step up to human needs as we find them or as they present themselves to us. One of my favorite people in the world is Ramesh Richard. He was one of my professors in seminary. I've had the privilege of traveling internationally with him. And I love that Ramesh Richard says, when you look at it, no one in the Scriptures who was godly ever sought significance. They sought to be an instrument. And that's what becoming sheepishly opportune is. Whatever I have to give, whenever I have it to give, whatever I can do, I'm going to do it for the glory of God. So this morning, much of the world is again mobilized to respond to another massive humanitarian crisis. This one in a country where the misery index was already high for a number of long-standing reasons. The death toll in Haiti is staggering to comprehend. They are, they are dealing with bodies by bulldozer. I just read a book. I finished it in December called Mountains Beyond Mountains. It's by an author named Tracy Kidder. Uh, Kidder is a, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and the book follows the globetrotting of a Harvard doctor named Paul Farmer. Maybe you've heard of this man. Paul Farmer uh, could have uh, lived a very tony life in the Boston suburbs. He chose to live most of his life in the nation of Haiti. And he has been treating HIV and tuberculosis patients there and in other parts of the world, has done incredible amounts of, of work. And the book focuses in on the, the, how Farmer also always was saying, why on this one island is the suffering so disproportionate? How much can one people endure? And so when this news broke, I'd already been thinking a lot about Haiti having read that book. With world attention focused on helping there, it seems this is an opportune time to consider what being sheepishly opportune not only requires of us, but what it does for the estimation of the gospel in the view of the world. And the gospel is perhaps never more attractive than when we are engaging with the deep hurts of the world as emissaries of Jesus' compassion, as stewards of His particular mercy. The gospel is adorned well when gospel culture is thus engaged in His name. Now, as we start looking at this text in Matthew 25, I've heard this text growing up in church uh, presented a number of different times. And many of the treatments of Matthew 25 give the impression that the church, that is the sheep, the church is the only entity engaged with the world's suffering. And that would be a wrong impression for us to take away because we are not the only ones in the world engaged in compassion and showing mercy. The reality in this parable that Jesus told is not that the sheep are nicer or better or they are necessarily more effective, or that they necessarily live richer lives than the goats. After all, we know some things about sheep, don't we? Namely, we know that it is no compliment to be referred to as a sheep. Nor is the reality this, that the sheep live over here on this high holy hill, 
and the goats live down here in this valley and never do the two mix. That's letting the destiny of the sheep and the goats in the parable determine their identity. The reality is that the sheep and the goats grazed together in Jesus' time. And we tend to think of an ancient shepherd, when you have that picture come to mind, in most of our pictures, that ancient shepherd has just got a flock of sheep with him. But in uh, ancient Israel, in the shepherding practiced in that day, typically there were goats intermixed with the sheep. And if a shepherd had both grazing together, what he might do at the end of the day is separate the sheep and the goats as night fell because uh, in that climate, the air gets pretty cold at night and sheep with the, the woolly coat were fine being out in the open air. They could pass the night there and not be in any discomfort, whereas the goats, their hair was thinner and the goats needed a shelter. And so the shepherd would either build a little lean-to against the wind or maybe there was a cave or if he was close to his dwelling, some kind of a barn to put the goats in to pass the night. Jesus takes what was very familiar to everybody in that culture. They know that's the way it works. They know that's how shepherds practice end-of-the-day separation of sheep and goats. He takes that very common thing and He extrapolates a grander spiritual reality, a, a point He wants to make from that very common thing that happened in everyday farming in ancient Israel. He uses this to picture the separation that will punctuate His return. He says at the very beginning of the parable, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. And so you're dealing with things that accompany this coming, this return. He's coming back. And He says this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a separation of humanity into two categories. And the categories are not going to be um, anything other than this uh, sheep and goats. They're not going to be ethnic They're not going to be Jew and Gentile. It's going to be sheep, His people, and goats, those we have lived among, who are not His people. And the criteria that informs the separation, not just the separation itself, the criteria that informs the separation is not so much what we've believed, though that is incredibly important. The criteria is what we've done. We have fed the hungry. We've given the thirsty something to drink. We took in strangers. We clothed the naked. We looked after the sick. We visited people in prison. Now these actions are to be for us, of course, the following through on what we believe. They are evidences of an allegiance to Jesus that we would care about these things and that we would see human needs as Jesus Himself sees them with His eyes, as an act of obedience to Him and tribute to Him. That's what allegiance means. But there are some very altruistic, compassionate goats out in the world, are there not? There are a lot of people who have no discernible relationship with Jesus, no concern for Jesus necessarily, who give a lot of their time and energies and resources to charities and foundations 
that have as their aim the aid and comfort of the least of these. The very familiar phrasing that comes out of this parable. The phrase is found in verse 40 and then again in verse 45. So what is the difference between the sheep and the goats? It's not that one is more useful than another. Both are useful. From sheep, you get wool. From wool, you make warm clothes. From sheep, you got milk. From sheep, you got meat. Goats were also useful. From their hair, you you made cashmere. And you got milk from goats. The curtains of the tabernacle in the Old Testament were made of goat's hair. Even in the Song of Solomon, when the lover is uh, extolling the, the beauties of the hair of his beloved, he says to her, twice, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Save that one for Valentine's Day. Okay? <laughs> Try it and see how it works. Your hair is like a flock of goats loping down the slopes of Gilead. Now, a goat was also the central figure in the Day of Atonement ritual. Remember that? Leviticus 16. High holy moment for the nation. You brought this little goat in. Symbolically, all the sins of the nation were put on his head. He was sent out into the wilderness to his death. A goat wasn't going to be able to fend for himself. Something would, would attack him. He would go off a cliff. Something. Even so, even though that was a goat that was used in that picture, goats had their own value. They weren't bad creatures. Responding to the crisis in Haiti today are goats as well as sheep. There are ships pulling into the harbor with crosses on them, and there are ships that don't have a cross on them, full of supplies and, and uh, medicine and people wanting to help. It's been that way for the crises that have preceded this one, it will be so for the ones to come. In fact, in our culture, it is a popular thing to be compassionate when you think about it. Everybody's got a cause. And uh, a lot of people are into something. When, when somebody gets a lot of money, one of the first things they do a lot of times in our culture, a celebrity or an athlete, they start a foundation. We should never sneeze at that. I'd say it's the principle of when Jesus said... Who's um, not against us is for us, necessarily. I mean, if they're doing good work to alleviate human suffering, applaud that. So, goats are working alongside of sheep. Sheep are working alongside of goats. Jesus said there will be earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places, that this is part of a creation that is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, as Romans 8 says. This parable should not give us the idea that all goats are uncaring. No. Many of them are responding to everyday crises as well. Not just the big things that come and dominate the news, but the everyday crises. The places where you find brokenness in our society. A thousand and one places where people need effective compassion. There are not only the sheepishly opportune, there are the goatishly opportune. So I ask the question, what is the difference? It is this. The main difference between the sheep and the goats is the sheep listen to the voice of the shepherd. 
The sheep are attuned to what the shepherd wants. The shepherd called and the sheep would come. The goats would remain. The goats are wilder by nature. The sheep, Jesus said, hear my voice, and they respond. The sheep have a relationship with the shepherd. It is based on trust and obedience. And so informing Jesus' contrast here is how shepherds would call to their flock and you'd watch the sheep come. And you'd watch the goats stay. Because they're goats. They don't come when they're called. And that is the essential difference in terms of the response given to the shepherd. And so utilizing the imagery of this parable, the difference between the sheepishly opportune and the goatishly opportune is not that one is more altruistic or compassionate than the other. The difference is when the goatishly opportune respond to human needs, they are responding to human needs as human needs. When the sheepishly opportune respond to human needs, they are responding as if they were Jesus' needs. For Jesus was Himself a stranger. He was Himself hungry. He was Himself thirsty. Jesus knew what it was to be in need, not as an accident of circumstances He was born into. He willingly chose that for Himself. Paul writes later, though He was rich, for our sakes He became poor. And His followers never forget this. The sheepishly opportune are not responding just to human needs as human needs. They are responding to Jesus' call to respond to human needs. It is the action of our devotion, of our allegiance to Him. The goatishly opportune may be interested in human needs, but not out of allegiance to Jesus. Simply out of a humanitarian impulse that is that is, is fine in the human consideration of things, and yet look at the parable. When their day comes to face Jesus Christ, they will know whatever good deeds they did because they are devoid of His glory. They will be treated as if they did nothing. That is harsh. It is a harsh reality. But... They are treated that way because in life they refused to listen to the voice of the shepherd and respond trustfully and obediently. And look, the shepherd knows the difference. The shepherd knows who is who. We don't and we don't need to try to figure it out. What you and I need to be concerned with is that we are listening to the voice of the shepherd ourselves. Mercy is the unifying ethic of Jesus in this parable. And if we're going to show mercy in the terms of this parable, we need to be shorn of three things, putting it sheepishly. Perspectives, attitudes, and actions. Perspectives which insulate us from real human beings and their needs. Attitudes which isolate us from real human beings and their needs and actions that insult real human beings and their needs. you follow me on that? These are the things we need to be shorn of. Just as a, a sheep gets shorn, these are the three things that if we're going to practice the mercy that is 
incumbent upon us to practice in this parable that Jesus assumes His people is practicing. Perspectives that insulate us from real human beings and their needs. Attitudes that isolate us from real human beings and their needs. And actions that insult real human beings and their needs. In the time I have left, let's take up these three. My conviction is that Christians are to be the greatest humanitarians on earth. Not in a contest with the goats to see who can be more so. But just because Jesus was the greatest humanitarian who ever walked this earth. Christianity is a culture. It is a gospel culture. And I've been telling First of Anners each week in this series that what a culture does is it makes out of what it is given. That's what culture is. Culture takes what it is given and it creates something. We don't... Only one makes, creates, cultivates ex nihilo, and that's God, out of nothing. We take what we are given, our redemption, the mercy that we have received, the love that we have been lavished upon us in, in, the, in the mercy of Christ Jesus, and we make something out of that. And that's what gospel culture does. And what we make, if we honor mercy and compassion truly, then we, we, we cultivate it, we create opportunities with it, we make the most of opportunities for it. And so by perspectives which insulate us from real human beings and their needs, I mean how we fundamentally see people. You, insert your names, anthropology. You're walking around everyday views of people. Are people in your way? Are people a bother? Do you wish that the world was less full than it is? More full than it is? How do you fundamentally see men and women people? Do we see people, even the worst specimens of humanity that we can think of, whomever that is in your mind, do we see them as still in the image and likeness of God and thereby possessing dignity. Yes, depravity is right there with us. And we are radically depraved, totally depraved. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be. We are as bad off as we can be in our sin, in our condition before God. But even if we consider someone most depraved, they have taken their depravity to heinous depths that we could never go there. They could never be a cannibal, you know. Do you still see that person in the image and likeness of God and thereby possessing a basic dignity that must be honored? No matter how defaced the image of God may be in a person, it is never erased. No matter how far into sin a person has fallen, you can think of the very worst criminal in the very worst situation. You can think of the guy who's locked down 23 hours a day because he's a threat to the other prisoners. You can think of some historical figure that lived and has the blood of many on his hands. You can think of whomever you think of, but that person is not irredeemable as I understand the gospel of grace. And this is not just philosophical. It's very practical because how you see people informs your perspective on them. 
It shapes your attitude toward them and it animates your actions either for or against them. Do you remember the man who was known as the Elephant Man? The film The Elephant Man was widely known, made widely known, the extraordinary story with which every English person was familiar at the end of the 19th century. It was in 1884 that Frederick Treves, a young surgeon and lecturer in anatomy at the London Hospital, found the Elephant Man in a rented shop opposite the hospital entrance. When Treves first saw his hunched up form, he thought him the embodiment of loneliness. He later described him as the most disgusting specimen of humanity he'd ever seen. He had an enormous misshapen head with a huge bony mass projecting from his brow and another from his upper jaw, which gave him an elephantine appearance. Spongy, stinking skin, like fungus or brown cauliflower, hung in bags from his back, his chest, the back of his head, and his right arm. His legs were deformed, his feet bulbous, and he had hip disease. His face was expressionless and his speech spluttering, almost unintelligible. His left arm and hand, however, were as shapely and delicate as a young woman's. To add to his suffering, he was treated like an animal, hawked from fair to fair and exhibited to the curious for two pence a look. Trevs wrote, He was shunned like a leper, housed like a wild beast, and got his only view of the world from a peephole in a showman's cart. He received less kindness than a dog, and terrified of staring eyes, he would creep into dark corners to hide. When he was abandoned by the circus showman, Trebs had him accommodated and cared for in a room at the back of the London hospital where three and a half years later he died in his sleep a few days after he had received his Easter Day communion. Trebs had imagined that he was an imbecile, probably from birth, but in the hospital he discovered that he was a human being, Joseph Merrick by name, in his early 20s, highly intelligent, a voracious reader with a passion for conversation an acute sensibility, and a romantic imagination. He was a gentle, affectionate, and lovable creature, Trevs wrote. When the first woman visited Joseph Merrick, gave him a smile and a greeting, and actually shook him by the hand, he broke down into uncontrollable sobbing. But from that day, his transformation began. He became a celebrity, and many notable people visited him. Gradually, he changed in Trev's words, from a hunted thing into a man. But actually, he'd always been a man. Trev's may never have articulated the Christian doctrine of human beings made in the image of God. Nevertheless, it was his remarkable respect for Joseph Merrick which enabled him to lift up his poor misshapen head and gain some measure of self-respect before he died. So perspectives which insulate us. Attitudes which isolate us from real human beings and their needs. By that, I mean our posture toward people who need mercy. Attitudes draw conclusions based on perspectives. You know, we see people in misery of various kinds and maybe we regard them as deserving of that place in life. Maybe we think of uh, some people as the bottom feeders of society. Maybe we think of them as uh, a bother or a leech or, you know, they'll never be more than that or even they're cursed to be that. 
as one of our erstwhile evangelical leaders tried to give that impression of Haitians, his fractured rationale for why such a tragedy befell them. I don't think Pat Robertson lacks compassion, merely tact. You know, every time I'm panhandled, and that happens a lot in this city when you go downtown, and I don't like it any more than you do, but every time I am, every time I pass by a homeless person asleep on a bus stop bench or standing at the intersection with the ubiquitous cardboard sign, I am in the habit of trying to look at that person now as once a child. That was somebody's baby. And I don't do that in any sort of idealism of the condition. I don't do that even in excusing the person. But I have found that doing that lubricates my compassion, which tends to get dry. You may be surprised to hear that from a pastor, but we're the guys who are frequently hearing the sob stories. We're the guys who the, the fellows who are calling down the yellow pages trying to find a church that will give them something when they finally get you on the phone. You know, they want to tell you why you should help them. And they're just playing your compassion a lot of times. And your compassion goes try. Your, your, your attitude sours. And so I need, I need that compassion lubricated. I need to see people as people not as the sum total of their condition. What we should aim for is what Marvin Alasky called effective compassion. He drew a distinction between effective compassion and affluent guilt relief, he called it. I commend your, his books to you on this subject because he makes a lot of sense. And effective compassion can be put simply enough. It is doing what you can, for whom you can, when you can, with what you have. That's effective compassion. Doing what you can, for whom you can, when you can, with what you have. Jesus said, give to the one who asks of you. And He didn't put any conditions on that. And it seems that the tenor of this parable is such that Jesus is not going to be impressed when He's examining our deeds as to whether we discerned whether this guy was going to use the bills that we could press into his hand for alcohol or not. That Jesus isn't going to be impressed with whether we went through approved agencies or not. Because if those things keep us from acting in compassion, then we're probably not participating in the ministry of Jesus. John Stott, in his book, Human Rights and Human Wrongs, conveys a, uh, a situation where a, a young woman was housed in a homeless shelter in London. And she, in leaving the shelter, pressed into the hand of the shelter official this poem that she wrote. I was hungry and you formed a humanitarian's group to discuss my hunger. I was imprisoned and you crept off quietly to your chapel to pray for my release. I was naked, and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me of the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I am still very hungry and lonely and cold. Perspectives that insulate. 
attitudes that isolate, and then finally, actions that insult real human beings and their needs. And by this, I mean the action or the inaction that we take toward the weak, toward the frail, toward the marginalized, the poor, the spent, the suffering, the broken, and the thrown away. Did you ever read the book, Same Kind of Different as Me? I think that's a book that every Christian man in the city of Memphis ought to read. If you read that book, you remember the exchange, the story of a, of a wealthy white man befriending uh, a homeless black man and becoming real friends. And you might remember uh, the discussion that Ron and Denver had about fishing. You remember this, if you read the book? Denver is the black homeless guy and he marvels at how Ron, the white wealthy guy, practices catch and release fishing. This makes no sense to Denver. Why would you throw back perfectly good food? You caught the fish. Eat it. And then Denver very perceptively makes the point to Ron that if Ron's friendship with Denver is catch and release, he is not interested. He says, I don't want you. I don't want to be your project. I want to be your friend. Are you going to be my friend? And Ron is transformed. Actions which insult real human beings and their needs. You know, inaction is usually just the culmination of insulating perspectives and isolating attitudes. I don't think anybody in here suffers from compassion fatigue. I know I don't. And you have to ask yourself the question, who does Jesus humanly identify with? Who does He humanly identify with? It's not the powerful and the strong, though He calls many of them to Himself. It's not the clean and well-credentialed, though He calls many of them to Himself. It's the least of these. It's the weak and the frail, the poor, the marginalized, the spent, the suffering, the broken, the thrown away. These are the ones He calls My brothers in this parable. And you know, some want to see in that that Jesus is restricting what he, when He says in verse 40, truly I say, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. There's an interpretation that says, well, what Jesus has in mind are the sick and the marginalized and the poor Christians. That if um, we haven't helped our brothers, then uh, this is a special object of uh, scorn. But... My brothers is missing in his same words to the goats in verse 45. I would not restrict, I don't think it's a good hermeneutic to restrict Jesus' meaning in verse 40 or 45 to be mercy only to Christians in needy spots as these. It doesn't seem to work. Rather, I take it more at face value. Jesus has a special concern for and an identification with those who suffer. Because He came as one who would suffer. He identifies Himself with the suffering. Whether they are His brothers by grace through faith or not, still, He maintains a special compassion for all who suffer poverty and marginalization and rejection of all kinds, regardless of what put them there. The sheep want to show mercy as a response to His voice. Because the sheep 
have never gotten over the first time they heard that voice saying, there is grace for you. Whether you're the, the guy who was the college fraternity president, or whether you were the guy who's coming from a dark corner somewhere in social consideration. You never got over hearing Him say, there's mercy for you. I love you. There's grace for you. I want you to be mine and to be with me. And you want to show that to others. And becoming sheepishly opportune is looking for opportunities to do so. Making opportunities to do so. Staying alert. And then boldly moving in. Simply with what you can. For whom you can. From what you have. And we won't always know what to do. And we won't always know how long to do it. And we won't know how much to do. But in the doing, Jesus is particularly honored. His teaching is adorned. His gospel is attractive. And God is made more believable than He was before. Father, we ask You for help to take Your truth and to apply it. I pray that whatever chaff was mixed in with the wheat this morning in sifting through these words that You will let that be blown away and that what remains is the wheat, what You want us to take and adorn Your doctrine with in action that honors and glorifies You. May we never be people who see ourselves as better than others. May we never be guilty of inaction when it is in our action, it is in our power, it is in our ability to do something. May we also not be out running around doing things just to do them. Father, help us to know what effective compassion is and then to practice it. And as we do, that we find You are made believable. Not because we preach ourselves, but because the actions are the melody through which someone gets drawn to the music and the lyrics of the Gospel and room is made in another heart for Your Son, the King. Thank You for all that You accomplish through us. It is Your mercy that You do so. You don't have to do anything through us, but that You use us. It's a great testament to Your grace. Thank You for this church and its leadership under Sandy. Bless Second Presbyterian richly in this year, in this new decade, that this church will continue to make great strides into our city and beyond our city into our world. Thank you for what a strategic instrument Second Presbyterian is in your hands. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.